Okay, so we're back in our Revelation series, and you're probably thinking, hopefully Mark is going to preach really short this morning so that we can all get out of here, right? And I'm not going to, unfortunately, because our job here is to preach the Word of God, right? And to show our children what God's Word says. And so we're not diluting God's Word this morning, we're going to preach the Word of God. And so we are going to preach from Revelation, we're in the fourth fourth section of the book. Section uh, 4 started off with the seven visions, well really it started off showing us this great cosmic battle between Satan and ultimately Jesus Christ who wins, right? The dragon represented by Satan, or Satan, the dragon represents Satan, Jesus, the Lamb of God, Charlie spoke about that this morning, and they're having this cosmic battle. It's a beautiful section in the book of Revelation because it gives us insight as to what's going on in the heavenly realm. And then in the actual visions, the first and second vision, we covered two beasts. Does everyone remember who those beasts are? The first beast came out of the sea, the beast of the sea, and what it represented were the nations and the kingdoms and the governments of this world that the enemy is going to use against us. He wants to bring an attack against us through persecution. He wants the church to face difficulties in this world. And I want to be clear, that beast is not coming at some point in the future. We don't have to be watching for him every corner or looking for him around the corner. He's here and he's been here since Jesus arrived on this earth. In fact, he will stay here until Jesus returns. He comes in many forms, in many shapes. And if you go to different countries in the world, the beast will look different to each individual. But make no mistake, he's persecuting God's people nonetheless. And then the beast of the land, the second beast, which I said when I preached on this, is a far more sinister beast, a beast that comes out of the land that looks like a lamb. And he's sinister because he actually looks like something that's cute and cuddly. Those crazy sheep that we saw on the TV, just... Those things are, I mean, I don't know, sheep are weird. I like to eat sheep. Anyway, uh, sorry. Okay, shh. Anyway, but this lamb looks like something we can recognize. And the reason it comes as a lamb is because he wants to look like the church. And so what we start to see is the rise of false teaching, the false gospel, this counterfeit Christianity that comes about. And the enemy wants to distract us. And believe me, he's distracting his church right now, God's church, through all of this crazy stuff that's being taught sometimes. Our job is to watch out for that, to be aware of it, because believe me, that beast can do a lot of damage. And that brings us to this morning. This morning we're going to cover the third and the fourth visions in this section. And while we're going to cover the realities of judgment this morning, and we are going to speak about that, so get ready, kids. Well, we are also going to cover the fact that we as God's children are safe, that we don't have to fear judgment. And we're going to be introduced to a new character, Babylon. This time, Babylon is going to be represented as the enemy's ally. The good news, though, is like all the other beasts and the dragon himself, Babylon will be defeated too. So turn within your Bibles to Revelation 14. We're going to read from verses 1 all the way through to verse 13. Before we do that, can I ask us just to pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege we have today, Lord, of just gathering and to hear your word and to preach your word and to just let your spirit move amongst us. I pray for all of our hearts, including our children, Lord that you would speak clearly to us. I pray that the words that I speak would be seasoned with salt and light and that whatever you want to say this morning would come through and not what I want to say, Lord. And so we pray for your will will to be done, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. First point for us this morning is we have the assurance as God's people that we are a people of Zion. I'm going to explain what that means a little bit more shortly, but let's read together verse 1. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This vision opens up with John seeing a picture of Mount Zion. And we're going to get to the 144,000 a little bit later on. But I want to speak about this concept of Zion just a little bit. So in the natural, Zion represents Jerusalem. 
There's a picture up of, of it here somewhere. I'm sure it's here. There we go. That's what Mount Zion looks like. There's the Mount of Olives in the background. That is ultimately where Jerusalem is. Mount Zion became the place where the first and the second temple were ultimately erected. It was the place that David conquered. It was called the city of David. And the reason it was only conquered by David and not Joshua is this is a natural fortress. It's on the top of a mountain. In fact, in fact if you go to Jerusalem today, not that I've ever been, but I've watched documentaries, so this is pretty much gospel. The landscape looked very different. A lot of the valleys have been filled in. But Mount Zion was a hill that could not be penetrated. The Jebusites controlled that place, and David conquered them. And so that's what it represents in the natural. When the Ark of the Covenant came and resided in the temple, Mount Zion also became the dwelling place of God, literally on this earth. That's where God dwelt. But in the supernatural, there's a lot more to Zion that we need to understand. You see, Mount Zion represents the place where we as God's children can have an intimate and sacred perspective on who the Lord Almighty actually is. Put another way, Mount Zion is the essence. It's the foreshadowing. It's a picture of the eternal kingdom that one day will come. Isaiah describes it in such a beautiful way, and I want to just spend a little bit of time speaking about this text from Isaiah. Isaiah 33 and verse 20 says, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. That city in heaven one day is the place where we will feast with God forever and ever and ever. That is eternity, friends. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams. It's interesting that this place is described to have broad rivers and streams. I want you to understand one thing, that you can go to any mountain in the world, at the top of it, you won't find broad rivers. But this place has broad rivers. Why? Because God is there. Where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. This passage tells us something critical about Mount Zion. It says that this place is going to contain the very li living waters that Charlie spoke to us about last week. In fact, wherever we see God throughout Scripture, we see a river. It started in the Garden of Eden, right? There was the river flowing through the Garden of Eden, bringing life to everything. Because that's what God does. He brings life. In Ezekiel 47, we encounter another river. Ezekiel has a vision of the same temple. And what he sees this time is a river that flows from the temple. It brings life to the Dead Sea. That's what the gospel does, right? The river of God, the life of God brings life to things that were once dead. It's interesting about that river, though, in Ezekiel 47, is that it's pictured as a river that can be as deep as you want it to be. In other words, some of us like to live our Christianity just looking at the river of God and saying, well, that's just enough for me. Some of us maybe want to dip our toes in God and say, oh, I got my fill of God for the week on Sunday morning. That's good for me. Some of us want to get in the ankle deep. And we say, Lord, I just want a little bit more of you, but that's enough. Perhaps for some it's needy, but I want to tell you something that Ezekiel says that we can get lost in this river. God is calling all of us as his children this morning, not to just dip our toes in his river, but to get lost in the river of God, to be filled with the anointing, to move with his presence, to know him in ways that we've never known him before. And if we're not doing that every moment of our lives, I can tell you now that we're not living. True life is found in the river of God. But there's something interesting about this river. There's something that you need to understand about navigating God's river. Isaiah says that this is a river where no boats with oars can pass, nor majestic ship. Now the interesting thing there, what, what Isaiah has in view about these ships are these war galleons that the Phoenicians and the Babylonians used to use. Do you know what's interesting about those galleons? Is in the hull there was a bunch of people rowing. 
They moved under human strength, under human power, under human ability. But on God's river, it is a place where human ability is not welcome. Where your power is not welcome. Where your abilities, your giftedness, your capacity is not welcome. And it's such a powerful picture because it helps us understand as uncomfortable as it may be that the only reason we as Christ followers can achieve anything for God and His kingdom is because of what God does in us, not what we do for ourselves. The Puritans had a saying. They said that pride was the last thing to leave a human's heart. In other words, before we get saved, the very last thing that gets dealt with by God is pride. But you know what also they said? They said it's the very first thing to return after you're saved. Pride is the, fir- the last thing to leave, but the first thing to return. You know, when we think of King David, we often think, well, what was his greatest sin? And it's easy for us to think of Bathsheba, and we think, well, his sin was passion, right? It was this adulterous affair, or maybe it was murder. From his passion, he killed Uriah the Hittite. But you know that that wasn't David's greatest sin. In 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, it tells us what David's greatest sin was. It was pride. You see, David one day decided, because he had beaten all of these armies, that he wanted to take an account of how many soldiers he had working for him. He wanted to understand what his military might was. And the enemy tricked him into doing this. So he calls Joab, his friend, and he says, Joab, I want you to go and I want you to number the army. I want you to take a census of all my warriors. Look how mighty I am. Joab tries to convince David. He says, please don't do this. It's the wrong thing to do. Our strength doesn't come from us. It comes from God. But David doesn't relent. And so Joab goes out, takes him a year and a half to do the census. He comes back. He says, we've got 1.5 million soldiers. Do you know what God did? He rebuked David and gave him three choices. He said, you have sinned against God. You've forgotten where your strength comes from. You've forgotten who provided you with all your might. And here's something interesting. David's sin of passion caused him one life. His son died. David's sin of the census caused 70,000 people to die. Pride, friends, is our greatest enemy. It's the place where we abandon our reliance on God. It's where we place our reliance on our own abilities. It's the place where we place so much emphasis on ourselves, our achievements, and our giftings. It's the place where we pick up our oars and decide to row for ourselves. I mean, if we're honest, all of us in this room love rowing. Some of you might even have a rowing machine at home. That's okay if you've got one. You're not sinning. But here's the thing with rowing. We like it because it makes us believe that we're in control. We can go where we want. We can go at the pace that we want. And that's what we do with the kingdom of God. We try and put God in a box and tell him, Lord, you'll go where I want you to go. You'll show up when I want you to show up. In fact, I can tell you now, Lord, when revival is going to happen because I'm having a revival service next week Sunday. And so you better be there when I'm there, Lord. Perhaps if we really are waiting for revival, we need to abandon our oars and learn to surrender to the flow of God's river. God does not want good rowers. He wants good sailors. Sailors that are willing to put up their sails and let the wind of God take them where He wants to go. We've got to stop making things happen for the kingdom. God's big enough and mighty enough and all-powerful enough to do it for Himself. That's what Zion represents. Zion represents a mentality, an ability to lay down our lives and say we are less than nothing in the presence of the Almighty God and Lord, we trust you to build your church. Can we be a people that do that? You're probably wondering who the 144,000 are. Charlie told us, those are the combined group of all of God's people worshipping Him with Him in heaven. The 12 tribes of the Old Covenant 
multiplied by the 12 tribes of the new covenant. This is my interpretation. Multiplied by a thousand gives you a number that you can't even measure. It's a big number. It's a group of people. It's all of us. It's us. We are the combined 144,000. The second point to have for us is that we can have assurance that in heaven our worship is both powerful and unending. And when we saw it this morning, right? Songs, the kids are singing, we're dancing. Some of us are awkward. Some of us are like, man, when is this going to be over? Oh my gosh, please, 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 please switch the music off. I can't take it anymore. I mean, that wasn't me at all. I was like, man, I was into it. I was dancing and everything. But here's the deal. In heaven, our sound will be like the sound of many rushing waters. In fact, up until this point in Revelations, that's only ever been used to describe God's voice thunder and the sound of rushing voices but in heaven the voice of the saints the combined people of God come together and all of a sudden it's this majestic sound why because we're worshiping the revelation of who Jesus is now I know that for some of us in this room our favorite part of these gatherings or any time you gather with people is worship right it's the singing it's the music some of us are just worshipers and you're thinking hallelujah man heaven's going to be a never-ending worship night for others you're like oh jeepers forever like, I've got to stand and sing these songs and jump up and down forever. I know it's daunting because it's sometimes weird to think that that's what we'll do for all of eternity. But let me tell you something about this kind of worship. It's a kind of worship that when declared would level this building and this entire city under the sheer weight of God's glory. And it's not worship out of obligation. It's worship out of revelation. It's worship out of the revelation of who Jesus is. Every second of every day for the rest of eternity, we see a new facet of Christ and all we can do inside of us is say, oh my God, Lord, you are amazing. That's the worship we have. It's not, oh gosh, man, I'm going to do this again today. No, it's like, Jesus, I didn't know this about you, but here you are again. Wow, this is awesome. Let's keep doing it. And we all do that together forever and ever and ever. Third point. Our worship in heaven will be united, and for that we can have assurance. Verse 3 says, And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from this earth. You know, in heaven there's no sense that we are all united because we're singing the songs that we like to sing. Or the style of worship is the style of worship we like to hear. That doesn't exist in heaven. It says that we're singing a new song. And I want to say this to you, that if we're honest this morning, this is one of the areas where the enemy has run havoc in his church. In God's church, I mean. And the reason he's run havoc is he's leveraged the divisions that mankind has created. I was having a discussion with someone yesterday. They told me how in churches, some people will fight over contemporary worship. This is the way we worship now. And some people will say, no, it's traditional worship. And before long, they're against each other because, you know, your worship is ungodly. My worship is godly. All of a sudden, this thing that worships the creator God of the universe has become a stumbling block for believers. And if you take it even further from that, we start to allow the enemy to trick us in believing that there are certain groups of people in the church that are created for one job, and that's to worship. We call them the worship team. We've given them a name. They're the worship team. And so they're going to worship for us. And what we're going to do is we're going to come and watch them worship on our behalf. And then when they're not there, we're like, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to worship. And the enemy's laughing in the back of the room. Sometimes we elevate these people because of their giftings to star-like status. And we have to go and find them and listen to their worship because their worship is going to get us into the presence of God. You know that you can encounter God in your house. You can encounter God with your worship, no matter how bad you sing. And believe me, I sing badly. But God still shows up. 
And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with talent. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with gifting. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with enjoying great worship music. But what I am saying is when we rely on people to worship on our behalf, we've missed out on everything that God wants us to see about Him. It does two things to the church when we allow this to happen. One, we become consumers of worship. We become the world's greatest critics. We've always got something to say about everybody else's worship. Oh, no, that wasn't great. We don't participate. We criticize. What it also does is it makes every church want to sound like all the other churches that do it well. And then what happens is we lose our individuality. We lose our own voice. You know, it says we have a new song to sing. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with singing other people's songs, but please can we stop trying to be like everyone else? You know, God has given us a call. He's given us a mandate. He's given this church a voice. He's given us a people to reach. And you know what? We have in us what we need to reach those people. We don't have to be like everyone else. And we need to stop competing like that. I'm not saying this to condemn. I'm saying this to free us. And it's not just worship that's a problem. Because to be honest, we as human beings have a great tendency to do this with everything in church. We look at great preachers and great models and great systems. And we say if it works for them, it's going to work for us. And so we recreate it again, thinking that that thing then is going to work now. And God's just up there saying, man, I gave you what you need. Just do what I've given you to do. What defines and unites our worship is not a preacher. It's not a band. It's not a style. It's not an instrument. It is Jesus Christ alone. That's why only the 144,000 can sing to him because only we know Christ in us who is the hope of glory. And so when we show up on a Sunday morning or when we're singing worship in our closets, it is Christ in us resonating with the Father that's bringing glory to him. That's where our worship gets powerful. Fourth point, we can have assurance that because of Jesus, we are redeemed. Not have been redeemed and aren't redeemed anymore because we've made a few slip-ups this week or will be redeemed at some point in the future. We are redeemed. Verse 4 says, It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Hallelujah. Bingo! <laughs> Boom! The kids were listening. Okay, guys. Great. Okay. Good job, guys. I'm proud of you, man. Well done. Okay, you're all going to get your prize. Charlie's got it. Just go see Charlie. He's going to give you all your prizes, and it's going to be awesome. Right, Charlie? Oh, wow. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. We've got to get back to the text. The adults are getting antsy here, guys. I know you kids are having fun, but the adults are like, when is this going to end? Okay, this text says there's four things that we have in common with each other as God's redeemed. It says, first, we are pure and holy. Now, I know all of us in this room are going, ooh, that means I'm not in the redeemed. Okay, okay, we got it. It's bingo, bingo, yes. Okay, that's right. Okay, now the bingo's over. Okay. Okay, shh. Okay, so now... We are pure and holy. And for those of us who actually are human beings, you'll realize that there are times when we don't behave in a pure and holy way. So what is this text saying? Well, I believe what this text is pointing to is these people are people who have a single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. It uses this beautiful picture. They haven't defiled themselves with women and they're virgins, speaking about men and women. It's not saying that we are single people. It's saying that our God is Jesus and He's the one that we worship. There is no God before Him and there will never be a God above Him. He is the one that we worship. It says that we are those that follow the Lamb. 
Like Charlie said this morning, that little lamb that was standing outside the fence was a weirdo, right? Because it wasn't following all the other lambs. He was like, I'm going to lead people. And it tells us that as Christ followers, for us to be great leaders, we have to become great followers, followers of Jesus. Paul says this, follow me as I follow Christ. They're the first fruits. Doesn't mean that there are a select group of super saints that exist in heaven that you can never attain. No, these are the 144,000. We are all the first fruits of God. Those that have been called the elect, that have been saved out of this world, that have been bought with the blood of Jesus. James says it this way Of his own, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All of us. For far too long, we've been thinking that we're all living in sin and there's this group of people that's just holy and they're amazing. No, the fact of the matter is, friends, this is who we are in Christ. They're honest people. And now everyone really gets quiet. Because it says there was no lie to be found in their mouth. Maybe I'm the only one that this affects, but here's the reality. I think that all of us, after we got saved, probably have said a lie at some point. And if you're thinking to yourself, no, I never have, you're probably lying right now. And so what is this lie that we don't have in our mouths? I believe it's the greatest lie that the enemy has sowed amongst the people of this world, and that is the lie that tells me I have the ability to save myself. It is the lie that says I am in control of my own destiny. It is the lie that says I can do this without Jesus. For those of us that are saved, we know one thing, and this is the truth that we stand on. We can do nothing without Christ. He is everything. He is all of it. And then John moves on to the fourth vision. He's going to introduce us to Babylon. And our fifth point says this, we can have assurance because the gospel of God is eternal and it is a hope for us. We're going to talk about judgment now. It's going to be uncomfortable, but here's the deal. This is an eternal hope for us as believers. Revelations 14, 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. Great. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There's something interesting about what the gospel does in this text. It's interesting because this angel is actually bringing judgment. He's bringing judgment on Babylon. And it tells us something powerful about the gospel. Do you know that the gospel message is only a message of hope and of salvation if it's received? Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, the gospel has a dual purpose. It does one of two things. If we receive it, it's hope. If we receive it, it's salvation. But if we reject it, the gospel is the very thing that will judge us at the end. Babylon is the representation of the world. It's the embodiment of all the things that are wrong with it. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink of the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. It's the love of money, the love of comfort, the love of all the sins that gratify our flesh. It's the pride of life. The good news is, is that Babylon... This ally of Satan, just like the beast of the land, the beast of the sea, and the dragon himself, will one day fall. And all of her temptations will go with her. Final point. In Christ, we can have assurance that we are safe from the judgment. Verse 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This is not a pretty picture. It's not one that instills a lot of hope for many people in this world. But the truth is, those who drank from the cup of Babylon, those who decided to gratify their flesh at the expense of rejecting the gospel, will one day drink from the cup of God's wrath. It says something interesting. It says that the wrath of God is diluted, is, is undiluted. It makes you think, is there like versions of wrath? Is there a little bit of wrath? Do you get like full wrath? This is full strength wrath. The symbology here is in those days, water was pretty dangerous to drink. Okay, and so people often drank wine all day. I mean, you guys are going, hallelujah. <laughs> but because they didn't want to be drunk all the time, they would dilute the wine. The point that John's making in this vision is that the wrath of God is undiluted. It comes only in one open stream, and that is judgment. There is no little judgment, half judgment, maybe judgment, and this idea that we go to this place called purgatory, and there's a little bit of suffering. No, it's either suffering or not suffering. You're either saved or you're not saved. There's only two kingdoms we can be a part of, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of darkness. That's it. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus is there when the torment happens and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now again, I want to say this. I said this two weeks ago. This is my interpretation. The mark is not something you're going to get by accident. Okay, You don't stumble into a tattoo parlor, walk out and now you've got the mark of the beast. You don't get a credit card, you've got the mark of the beast. You don't get the COVID vaccine, now you've got the mark of the beast. It's none of those things. It's the choice of either following the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of life. And the kingdom of light. 777 is all of us. The 144,000. The 666 is everyone who's rejected Jesus. That's as simple as it is. The punishment is torment. How many of you like to be tormented? Some of you might think I'm being tormented right now. Nobody wants to be tormented. Let me tell you, torment is a terrible thing. But the question is, who is being tormented? The text is clear. Both the beast... And all of his followers, as well as everyone that chose to reject the gospel, will be tormented. It is unmerciful, friends. It is unending. I don't know how many words to describe that to you as something so terrible. The good news, though, is that that day hasn't come. Right now, friends, on this earth, there are people who are headed for eternal torment. There are people right now who are rejecting the gospel. Perhaps it's because no one's really sat down and loved them enough to tell them what it truly means. Right now, the grace of God is being poured out on this earth. Do you know that the Bible says that the, God, the sun rises on both the wicked and the good? God right now is giving this world grace. But it's not forever. I'm going to close with this. The band can come up. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. It's oxymoronic. Blessed are those in the Lord who die from now on. You know what it's telling us, friends? Is that none of us in this room should ever be afraid of any persecution. None of us should be afraid to share our faith. None of us should be afraid to talk to people about this gospel message. And we need to get rid of this notion of safe and sanitized church, this teacup Christianity where we sit down and want to drink cake and shortbread and think that that's what church is about. No, friends, God's called us to be soldiers in His army. 
Marcus Herbert always uses this analogy. It's the Indiana Jones version of Christianity. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, take heart. You can live fearlessly. You can live on the edge. You can live with a pedal to the metal like a believer should. Because guess what, friends? You don't have to worry. There is eternal rest coming. Rest forever with God in heaven. That's what we get to look forward to when we die. And so what are we wasting our times for? And I'm not saying go look for death, please. But honestly, friends, let's stop being fearful about the reaction we're going to get from the world, from the people around us. Believe me, friends, they will thank you one day for telling them this message. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Nothing we do on this earth is unnoticed by God. Even the tears you cry and the pain you've been through. Everything gets stored up in heaven and one day we will receive our reward. There's some contrast I want to paint and I'm closing with these. The Lamb's followers have a new song to sing. The beast's followers have no rest. The Lamb's followers are sealed with God's name, safe for eternity, and the beasts are branded with a mark and will face His judgment. The Lamb's followers are safe. The beasts are vulnerable and heading for the fall associated with Babylon. The Lamb's followers are through the gospel pure. The beasts are tainted with Babylon's adulteries. The Lamb's followers follow Him into eternal happiness. And the beasts are heading towards eternal torment. It's easy for us to think that the church is on the back foot. That somehow the enemy has won and he's winning. And I know I get it. Sometimes we look at this world and we think clearly the enemy has got the upper hand. But let me tell you, friends, the kingdom of darkness is not a kingdom that's rising. It's a kingdom that is falling. It's the last death throes of the enemy trying to take as many people to hell with him as possible. And the only ones that stand in the gap are you and I. And every other believer in Christ this morning because that's the way God wanted it to be. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the anointing of God. And when we're flowing on His river, we can bring life to the dead. We're not about saving people. We're about raising the dead. That's what Christianity is. You're not a good person, a bad person that's become good. You were a dead person who's been made alive. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and 19. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. That same opportunity, that same choice is being presented right now to the entire world. But it needs, some, it needs someone to take. And that's our job. Our job is to be unrelenting in wanting to preach the gospel, talk about Jesus, remind people what these contrasts truly mean for them. Whether they choose it or not is up to them. But at the very least... They deserve us to tell them the truth. Can I ask you to stand and bow your heads? You know, maybe there's somebody here today that's actually never, ever made a choice like this before in their lives. Maybe you, even, you never even knew there was a choice to make. And so with everyone's eyes closed, if I can just ask, if there's anyone here that's never actually had this choice presented to them and you want to make the decision this morning to walk into an eternity with Jesus, not because of your goodness, your holiness, or your religiosity, not because you're here at church, and not because you read the Bible, but because Jesus died for you on the cross and His blood is enough, then can I ask you just to raise your hands if you're here. I want to pray with you and pray over you this morning. This is the most important decision that you'll ever make. It's the only decision that counts in the end. 
is do we choose Jesus or do we choose the world? I see some hands raised. And so can I ask, this is not a special prayer that we're going to pray. This is not what saves you. The blood of Jesus does, but there is a declaration that we make this morning. So can I ask us all to pray in unity with those that have lifted their hands this morning and to pray this. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. We accept what you did for us on the cross. That your blood has raised me from the dead. And it is final. It is finished. I declare this morning that I will commit my life to follow you, Lord, wherever you lead me, to learn your ways and to trust in you. And I will take this great commission and I will preach it to anyone that you put in my way. I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with one last song. If anyone needs prayer, maybe you need to be encouraged. Maybe you just need someone to lay hands on you. Our prayer team will be here. We'll be up here in the front. We've made more space here today. So if you need prayer while we worship, just come up to the front and we'll gladly pray over you no matter what it's about. We love you, church.